Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that is still talking about reproductive justice. Today we have Laura, Zoe, Ozzy, and Walida. Welcome back. Who is she? Yes. Now we have two Sag icons back with us. Um, For those who don't know, you must be new on the block, but Walida used to be a coven mate. I mean, coven mate for life, but used to be a co-host. You know, I think you left us sometime in early pandemic times. Time is a flat circle at at this point. It is. It is. (laughs) Either way, we are so happy to have you back. I know it came under some interesting circumstances because basically Walita reached out to Zoe and I and was like, um, the world's on fucking fire and (laughs) I need to do something about it. So I'm coming back. And we were like, thank God. We love you. We miss you. We're so happy. Um. I'm very happy to be back and I'm, I'm happy, not happy to be talking about this subject yeah. Once again. One, yet know, again. I, the day the day that Roe was overturned, I tweeted out a picture of myself 20 years ago in DC protesting for reproductive rights. So I was like, really? Still? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, still. Oh, still. The oligarchy is is strong. Um, but you know, with Walita's brilliance. Uh, she was brilliant enough to think of an incredible guest to have with us, um, which we have here today, Jenny Brown. Thank you for coming, Jenny. It's great to be here. Yes. Jenny is an activist and the author of Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. Um, and so we're definitely going to dive into that book, but um, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, so I'm an organizer with National Women's Liberation, um, and I also wrote a book in 2019 about abortion called Without Abo- Without Apology. Um, so uh, that has uh, been really relevant right now. And Absolutely. then um, I'm a, a, a former editor at Labor Notes Magazine. I covered the hospitality industry, the construction trades, women workers, um, the attempt to organize Walmart. Um, and I was also co-chair of an attempt in the 90s to start a labor party in the United States, um, a, yeah. a local a local chapter in Florida. Um, and, uh, you know, we went along for about 10 years. In fact, that chapter still exists in, in Gainesville, um, but no longer, sadly, a part of a national labor party attempt. Um, and our mis- main issues at that time were just health care and workers' rights and free higher education. And um, we also campaigned around shorter work week and all kinds of stuff like that. That's amazing. That's super amazing. cool. Um, no pressure to tell us, but we also often ask our hosts or our guests rather what their sun sign is. Scorpio. Oh, we love to see it. We love to see it. I'm a Scorpio moon and Scorpio rising, so I'm just like, yes. All right. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you so much for that introduction. I guess I wanted to ask a little bit more specifically about like your activist history um, and just how you first got involved in 
activism and um, reporting around reproductive rights and reproductive justice. Um, I guess both sort of like, how did you get into it? And also what did like the landscape of access to contraception and abortion look like at that time when you were getting started around these issues? Yeah, so I first got involved um, around the Webster Supreme Court decision in 1989, and we thought that that was going to open the door to a lot of restrictions, which it did. Um, But the thing that was relevant to us in Florida was that our governor called a special session to restrict abortion, um, and we showed up with uh, 10,000 friends and um, occupied the Capitol and really shut it down and were, they were unable to move any legislation. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that Florida will again call a special, special session to restrict abortion so we can show up again. But, um, but basically, uh, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but contraceptives were also under attack. I remember... Um, at some point in the 90s, everybody was like, why did my birth control prices triple? And we had no idea, but subsidies had been yanked from college infirmaries. And then Florida put in uh, parental consent. Um, so that meant that then we had to scramble to make sure that young people got were able to go through the court system if they couldn't tell their parents about abortion. We also had a really strong feminist clinic started by radicals in the early 70s, and it was constantly picketed. Um, Our Veterans for Peace chapter actually was really helpful in defending the clinic when it was threatened with being set on fire. They, uh, you know, basically occupied it as, you know, an armed force to defend it. And uh, a a clinic about 40 miles south of us in Ocala was firebombed and uh, and burned burned down. And um, the black doctor at that Ocala clinic also got charged with extortion because he complained that the police weren't protecting his clinic um, and he was totally railroaded. So there was a lot going on in terms of abortion and and though we didn't realize it under the surface, also contraception at that point. Yeah, well, that is a perfect segue into actually what I wanted to ask you about next, um, because you're very involved in the fight for over-the-counter emergency contraceptives and also one of the plaintiffs in what was ultimately the winning lawsuit around that. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about um, what that movement and your involvement in it um, looked like. Yeah, so the the morning after pill, I didn't even know the morning after pill existed until I learned about it from the movement, basically. Um, so it was a prescription only drug at that point. Um, you know, now it's sold under the plan B. Um, but like we had a fight at the university of Florida to get, um, doctors in the infirmary to be willing to prescribe it because there were, a couple of doctors there and one in particular who would not prescribe it. And so since it's time sensitive, like you, you need the, it's more effective the sooner after unprotected sex, you take it. Um, we thought this was really outrageous. And then in the middle of this fight around this, this, uh, sexist doctor, we learned that, um, that it could be, an over-the-counter drug. We had not even thought about that, but like this one nurse practitioner at our our radical clinic, the Gainesville Women's Health Center, said, "Oh, well, there, there's there's no reason for a prescription for that. There's no medical reason for it. It's just politics." 
And so we started thinking, well, what would it look like to do a campaign to make that over the counter, you know, for the whole country? Um, and so we were counseled by a lot of the nonprofits who were working in that space and had been slowly trying to expand access that, you know, we should go for a small demand, like making it available in emergency rooms for rape victims. And so we did consciousness raising around why we needed the morning after pill when we had needed it. And uh, so those of us who, most of us had not been raped, that was not the reason we needed it. But those of us who had been raped had not gone to the emergency room. So we were like, okay, that's not gonna help very many people. <laughs> um, so we decided to, um, to join this lawsuit that Center for Reproductive Rights had, had was starting to develop and, and eventually filed um, to ask the FDA, which had control over it, to make it over the counter. And, but we were like the grassroots part of this campaign. We broke the law with the pill really brazenly. We would, every February 15th, we would have rallies where we handed it out, which was illegal. Um, and we had like, you know, people faxing the FDA saying, I will give a friend the morning after pill. We did a sit in at the FDA. We did, um, we did a, a, like lots of fundraisers and demonstrations where we passed the pill out or had it as a door prize. Um, and all of this was to like get people used to the idea that it could be over the counter, that it wasn't this like terrible drug where you had to talk to your doctor and all this stuff. Um, and so after a lot of legal wrangling and depositions, we, we partially, we got a partial victory and they said, okay, we'll make it over the counter, but only for ages 18 and over. And then they changed it to 17 and over when we weren't willing to settle. And we did not want to settle because our experience was that it was particularly helpful when we were young and if it was behind the counter and you had to show ID, that would be all kinds of crazy barriers for people, right? First of all, if you're in a small town, people know you, you have to show ID. Or um, if you didn't have the proper ID, if you, you know, your papers weren't in order or something, or just like the idea that everybody would be carded for birth control in order to restrict young people from getting it. So we were we were outraged by that and and we and we were again told by all the nonprofits, oh, you won't get anything more. You have, should settle. You should settle. And we refused and sort of went our own way and continued the lawsuit and were able to eventually win it over the counter for all ages, any gender. You can get it off the shelf. So um, now what we need is free, but <laughs> that's the next step. But in 2013, the, um, we got a, a favorable uh, cor court decision on it. That's amazing. It's crazy to me that you can be 15 years old and have a baby without an ID, but right. you can't not have a baby unless you have an ID. <laughs> what the hell? That have y'all seen the movie Plan B? Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Highly recommend. Oh. It's on Hulu. And like the whole thing is like, even though the person's under 18 and they ask for ID and there's a whole thing and... But anyway, it's very, I, you know, that's really, really interesting. 
and the and pharmacies, her- the pharmacies still violate the the rules on this. They still ask for ID. Exactly. We, we, we did a bunch of we did a bunch of testing going into pharmacies and, and getting it and and discovered that it was you know it was still a problem. Oh yeah, exactly. Well, I loved it in the movie. The mom ends up like finding out and she takes the pharmacy to town basically is like you're doing illegal shit here like my daughter came and asked for this it sh- I shouldn't have to be here to do this um wild I mean obviously that's a fictional movie but based on- somewhat in uh, the r- real uh cuckoo banana state that is the United States and the random choice well we'll get into choice in many ways but that pharmacists can make in those situations also, just the names of Plan B are always so funny. The fav- my favorite one that I've seen at like a CVS is called Aftera, oh. like <laughs> after with an A at the end. Aftera, Aftera, perfect. I can envision a commercial for that. Yeah. Just a woman walking on the beach. <laughs> she got exactly. laid last night. <laughs> um. So I know we want to get into um, specifically kind of your work on a birth strike. And I just thought maybe you could lay out for us, what do you mean by birth strike? Um, Like, what are we talking about here when we talk about a birth strike? So basically the idea of birth strike or birth slowdown um, comes from uh, a speech that Emma Goldman gave um, where, you know, this was a speech she gave repeatedly that was about contraceptives. Um, So that's like kind of where the term comes from. And it was also used in France um, prior to that. But but basically what we mean today about it is that um, a lot of us are either not having kids or stopping at one when we thought we would have larger families because it's too damn hard to do. Right. So the the lack of reliable health care, the costs of the health care, the the mistreatment under health care, um, the uh, lack of affordable child care, the lack of paid leave, um, all of the things that we're trying to juggle with our jobs, um, the just the the general hostility to um, to helping the society helping in any way with parenthood um, really means that that you really feel like you're on your own and and for for a lot of people in our group we did a we did a consciousness raising it I think it was in 2017 where person after person got up and said I really you know thought that I wanted more than one kid, but I just can't figure out how to make it work. So like we had this phenomenon in our group. And then there were a lot of people who had decided to have no kids, not because they didn't want to have kids, but because it just was too hard to figure out how to like all the pieces, getting all the pieces together. Um, So, and, and we've now talked to, you know, thousands, I think by now of women and all parents are facing this um who's who basically say the same thing um that without our reproductive working conditions are really too they're just too difficult so 
Um, so, but this is all spontaneous, right? People are not going, I am as a political demand for better reproductive working conditions, not going to have a kid. They're going, how am I going to get childcare? Right. <laughs> so they're blaming themselves. They're thinking, oh, well, I could have, um, you know, maybe if I had moved near my parents or if I had gotten a different job or if I didn't go into debt for school or some, you know, like they're, they're thinking it's their own problem. And so what we want to talk about is like how this is a, a society-wide problem and it's not individual people's fault and there are ways to make it easier and our society needs to do those if they want us to do this work. Um, so we want to take it from that realm of the personal where it's really, you know, we're really blaming ourselves and feeling like we, we must be some kind of idiots for not being able to juggle all this stuff and really think of it as a political question. Um, because right now, like this whole idea of like, you know, having a kid is your choice. And it's kind of like, do you really want this exotic, expensive pet? And it's like this individual idea, but really it's, um, it's much more substantial and, and important thing than that, because it's really about, you know, carrying on the society and recreating and, and raising whole humans. Right. So, so it, the whole, the whole choice framework, I think is a little, is a little weak way of, of looking at it. And it's sort of, emphasizes this individual responsibility idea of how you have kids when what we really want to do is have a society-wide responsibility that assists parents in all of the work that we have to do. And in particular, this falls on women and femmes. So um, that really, that's kind of how we think about the birth strike is it's not quite that we're, that we know that we're on strike yet, but if we started to think of it in political terms, it could be very powerful. Yeah, that's so interesting that it's, you know, you're using the framework of a strike, which is a very intentional um, mass demonstration. And it's this thing that is happening on a mass level, but again, kind of displaced onto the individual. And I just love that framework of bringing it back to a collective of like, no, we live in a hell society and... There are many, many, many reasons and roadblocks to people having children um, and that kind of and taking that thing that's almost been pressed upon us, but still using a framework of strike is really, really interesting. Yeah. One of the things you also mentioned in your book, which I thought was very insightful. And, you know, when you think about it, really obvious, like a lot of the liberal feminist framework around, you know, abortion should be available everywhere because it's a key poverty fighting tool. And it's like, that gets it exactly backwards. Actually um, people should be able to have as many children as they want to have um, and still not be poor. And it's that, that shouldn't even be part of the, how we think about reproductive rights and reproductive autonomy. Um, I, I love that when I read that because I hear that so often and I just think to myself like, well, that just doesn't seem fair. Like that, that just means children are for our luxury for the rich and wanting to have children is like one of the most natural, like not just human, but like every living thing like <laughs> reproduces itself. And it's, it's such a strange way to, to tell humans like, no, only some of you should have them and the rest of you, unless you can't afford them, you shouldn't be able to. 
Um, but speaking of liberal feminism, you do touch upon some some of the liberal feminist analysis in your in your book, um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. You mentioned um, Katha Pollitt, for example, her central argument about the fight over abortion is wanting to control women. That this stems from misogyny. Um, in fact, uh, last week Jacobin also published an article. Um, um, by Paul Heidemann uh, called the anti-abortion movement is a rotten fruit of a brutally unequal society, which essentially makes a similar argument that says, well, it's not really about labor supply. There's not a capitalist plot for, to increase the labor supply. Um, this is really just that capitalism creates hierarchies and, and women and femmes are at the bottom of the hierarchy um, in terms of gender and sex. Um, but you say that this is an incomplete analysis, that there's actually, there actually is a Marxist analysis to it, a material analysis to, to the abortion fight. Um, I was wondering if you could go into that a little bit. Yeah, so first of all, on Paul Heidemann, I think that, I think when, when we're talking about labor supply, there's this, this um, idea that we're talking about immediate requirements for like the next quarter or something. And that is definitely not what we're talking about when we talk about the um, the ruling class wanting to increase birth, birth, the birth rate. Um, basically, with the what the ruling class talks about when they want to increase the birth rate is first of all, our birth rate is below replacement levels. So, like without immigration, eventually the 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 country is going to shrink, right? And even with immigration, unless it increases drastically, the country is going to shrink. So that's a situation that capitalists are not prepared for. And frankly, military planners don't like either, um, where, where your economy relies on population growth. And when you have a shrinking economy, as, as they do in Japan now, they actually have a shrinking population. Um, you get economic stagnation because capitalism is like is designed for never-ending growth. It's like profit profit opportunities come from that never-ending growth that it's constantly wanting to you know very unhealthy for everybody, including the planet. Right. So um, so it's not it's not that we as the ninety nine percent need more population, but but capitalists. Uh, growth requirements very much are reliant on that on population growth as as a factor in their in their whole system, and really capitalists have not faced until the Japanese example and some countries are going to be following them like the European population actually dropped in the last couple of years. Um, they haven't really faced that situation, so they're not exactly sure what to do about it, and they're sort of panicked about it. Um, now, with Katha's argument, she says, okay, so she says that, um, that the fight over abortion is about controlling women. And I think that's to some degree right. But the question is, why throughout history has there been a desire of men in power to control women? And one of the primary things that ruling classes throughout history have wanted to control women for is to control their reproduction, whether that's to fill the armies or to have a larger workforce to make the country big, to colonize other places. All of these things have been factors. Um, so I'd say one difference between liberal feminism and socialist or radical feminism is that radicals talk about the material interests involved, like who's benefiting, who's paying. And 
Kathy is making a radical point when she says it's material benefits that men gain from oppressing women. But I think there is some confusion among feminists around reproductive freedom in particular, because in the 1960s, when the women's liberation movement made this demand for free abortion on demand, we were still in the post-war baby boom, and it seemed to be going on basically forever. People didn't expect it to stop. Um, and birth rates were so high that, you know, establishment men were complaining that women were having too many kids who were filling their welfare roles. They couldn't keep their legs closed. They were responsible for the overcrowding and the crime and the overpopulation. So it didn't seem like they wanted us to have more kids at that point. Why were they against abortion? So then people came up with other theories of what, what was going on. They wanted to punish women for having sex and other explanations that you still hear. The thing is that about the time Roe was decided, nobody really expected this, but the US birth rate dropped pretty sharply. Um, I mean, it was a high of 3.6 children per woman average in 1960, and it dropped to like 1.75 or so by 1975. So, um, and that was below what they regard as replacement rate, which is 2.1 children per woman. Um, now it will recover a little in the following decades, partly because we didn't have good access to abortion and contraception. Um, but now we're in a situation where we have the lowest birth rate in our history. So it's a new situation. We have to examine that and analyze that, not just continue with the assumptions that the second wave feminists made in a what was actually a very different situation. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. For all I remember that. also, um, sorry, I was thinking through how to say this. Um, but I remember also you said something about how like the over, over, they were, the, especially the U.S. government was looking at overpopulation, not just here, but abroad, um, the Nixon administration particularly. And they were talking about how um, high population rates lead to communism. And like the more children people had, the more likely it was that they, they went communist because it's just more mouths to feed. And I just thought that was so funny. We could only hope. Um <laughs> So you, you've been touching on this, but something that you talk about a lot in the book is the, the global baby bust that, that we've been seeing in, in recent years and kind of the various reactions in different countries and um, in the U.S., as we all know, and I assume everyone listening, but there's this emphasis on restrictive policies as it relates to birth control and abortion. And we've talked about this in other episodes, too. Um, whereas in a lot of other countries, there's more incentives and other social welfare measures in place to support people in choosing to have children. And of course, these are both kind of two sides of the capitalist coin of like, how do we get people to um, want to replace the workforce and have more children? I was wondering if you could talk more about this dichotomy and other than like that our government just hates us, like why the U.S. is so um, stringent on the restrictive policies, whereas other countries are more like, let's pay people to have babies. Well, it's interesting because it basically starts in Sweden in the 30s, where they already had a, a labor government and the birth rate was was going down basically because um, women wanted to have jobs. They didn't want to just be stuck at home with the kids. And um, and so so there was this recommendation that they make it they make it easier to to have kids. So with maternity hospitals and, you know, rather than having baby at home, a little bit safer, 
um, a little more care um, and, you know, creches, basically ways that, that in the 30s they were thinking about this. Um, but it doesn't really it doesn't really become kind of the welfare state that we know it until after World War II. And I think the big thing is that they simply have stronger labor movements and, and labor representation in government than we do here. So when governments decided that they wanted people to have more kids, there was, there was a common interest with working class families going, yeah, we need this stuff. Um, so first of all, they already had, uh, national healthcare systems in most, in most countries. And uh, um, so we're talking mostly Northern Europe, but even in Portugal and Spain, after they got rid of their fascist governments, they were able to institute national healthcare systems. And then, um, and then when they want abortion, which was throughout the seventies, different, uh, different countries in Europe got abortion. Um, and I should say all of the socialist countries already had it. Um, for free, but um, in in the European countries that that weren't socialist, those ones did slowly get it by the by 1980. Most of them had it, um, and it and it was included free under the national health system, right? And then they started to bring in free childcare, longer paid leaves. Of course, this was all congruent with what the labor movement wanted too, right? Um, they already had control the length of the work week and negotiated like national vacation and sick leave that wouldn't be dependent on your employer. So your employer doesn't have any incentive to keep you from taking it. Um, and then like even the stingiest, which would probably be England um, instituted family allowances. So a monthly check you get for each kid you have up to a certain age. Um, and, and so they, basically having a strong labor movement meant that some of this feminist stuff, when the women's liberation movement made the demand, they could join in with the labor movement and their labor governments and, and win some of this stuff. Obviously here, we don't have healthcare systems that cover abortion and birth control. And basically the labor movement has been slowly crushed and co-opted by the democratic party. And, you know, the democratic party became more and more beholden to corporate donors. So basically, working people and working women do not have much representation in government at this point. Um, and as a result, like the main pronatal programs we have here are basically making it hard, harder to get abortion and birth control, which since we have to pay out of pocket for almost all our healthcare is pretty easy to make it difficult to get for us to get. Right. <laughs> um, and then of course, rules are uh, rules and regulations and, and, stuff have been, have been really making it harder. Now we do, some people argue, oh, well, we do spend money on child rearing in the US It's in the form of tax credits. So those are means tested, which means that the amount you get is based on your income, but it also cuts out the poorest who don't file. So they don't see the money. And then it's, it, it's like the worst sort of most individualistic and most difficult way of like giving, giving people uh, cash to, to raise their kids. Um, and it's easy to take away. It's easy to, it's easy to cut because it's cash, right? So you can just wait for inflation to get rid of it, in fact. So, um, so th that's kind of what we see here. Absolutely. Um, so you basically already started talking about this. Um, but I like 
using, um, you know, the framework of choice and how that has affected the abortion movement. Um, and as you pointed out, but abortion isn't really about individual choice, but it's a political tool. Um, can you talk about that? Why isn't this about individual choice? Yeah, I mean, I think childbearing is pretty much viewed as something to do if you can afford it, kind of like, like you said about, oh, well, um, you know, it's a power, uh, abortion is a poverty fighting tool, because these people who can't afford, uh, afford kids shouldn't have kids. And which is insane. So nuts. because, it's... because like, okay, over half the population doesn't have 500 bucks in the bank. Right. Like, okay. So you explain to us who is supposed to be raising kids if like most people can't even afford to have kids. I mean, it's just uh, so anyway, uh, th that, whole, th that whole thing just in their brains. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> Janet Yellen was a uh, treasury secretary right now um, was the l latest, you know, OK, so lady, you were the head of the Fed. And now you're treasury secretary. You explain to us, how right. are we supposed to have kids when we are not able to afford housing and healthcare and childcare? It's just like ridiculous. Um, it's just the, con the contradictions of capitalism. They can't even resolve them themselves. Because, right. Like they can't, they can't say we need a welfare state. Like they can't say it because we have a bourgeois government. And so like we, we need yeah. that. That's the answer. It's one of the main answers, but they can't bring themselves to say it because they are tied by their social relation to capital, their social relation to, the, to power. Oh, it's just, it's infuriating. Well, anything that makes, uh, makes working class life slightly less hellish and like makes us more secure is anathema to employers, right? Because it means we're less dependent on the paycheck and the job. Right. So yeah. then we have more power in our lives and we can tell them to stuff it or we could organize a union and not be worried about being fired or whatever. I mean, it's just all of that. It, it all works together. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think it's on this choice thing. Parents are taking on the task of continuing the society with their work of raising kids. Right. So that should be recognized. And the fact that it isn't the fact that it's, it's sort of regarded as an individual thing that you you're doing. And, Oh, if you can't pay for it, clearly you just don't have your stuff together. Um, that, that feeds into this whole idea that society has no role in, in, in supporting this stuff. No role. There's no, there's no, there's no contribution that needs to be made by the larger society, which is benefiting from this work. And it in makes it really makes that work invisible, pushes it back into the family. And this was when the birth rate was quite high in, in the US, the work was actually pretty invisible. But as it has dropped, we can see how important it is, not, not just to capitalists, but to everyone, right? If nobody had any babies in 30 years, there would no be, be no 30 year olds who would be working in jobs that people are working in now. So um, we need people to string utility wires and harvest food and zap our tumors. And we, we, we need a society, right? Um, so, so for us, like pregnancy, giving birth, 
raising kids, these are difficult in the best of circumstances. And we do not have the best of circumstances right now. I mean, it's like you're raising a whole human. Like that's, that's really important. That's, that's like, a, it's more important than a lot of pixel pushing jobs that these pixel pushers are always criticizing people who are doing the child rearing. Oh, that's not important work. Yes, actually it's more important work than your work. Um, you know, uh, working to make an, you know, to deny people their care through insurance or whatever you're doing. So, um, so that like, we need to recognize that work, not just with, words, but with resources and assistance and guarantees that we all need, whether we have kids or not, of health care and paid leave and all of the, you know, all of the stuff that we need with shorter working hours. Um, so I think that's the, that's the key thing about this sort of choice framework and how it's, how it, it 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 just makes everybody think that it's their individual job and blame themselves. They can't make it work. Yeah, that's that's spot on. Um, we I also wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of cultural um, framework that abortion is often couched in. Um, you know, we are we're of course talking about this through a materialist lens, um, but there is a really huge cultural war out there over abortion. It's, it's, you know, to a lot of people make it a sort of moral issue. Um, recently, I think a couple of weeks ago, we heard a Republican Congresswoman from my state, Illinois, say that the overturning of Roe versus Wade was a victory for white life. Um, former rep uh, from Iowa, Steve King, you may have no known him, um, noted white supremacist, once said, we can't rebuild our civilization with someone else's babies, assuming he meant non-white babies, you know, black and brown babies. Um, so there are there are people out there that, that purely want to push this as a cultural issue, as a morality issue. Um, how does this square with our more Marxist or socialist uh, analysis of the issue? Why, why is there a culture war? Um, around this. Yeah, I mean, Pat Buchanan started started writing these hysterical right. books of like 25 years ago about, you know, death yeah. of the West, the replacement, he's the original replacement theory guy, right? The right, reconquest, right, yeah. you know, and all this stuff. So here's, I think, the problem from the standpoint of the ruling class. Um, so U.S. capitalists want more immigration because obviously the they need workers and they're running out of workers here. Um, but immigrants have not been generally, and I'm going to make some broad generalizations, but I think it's helpful to kind of get, get the general picture. Immigrants generally have not been steeped in the individualism and anti-communism that we have in the U.S., right? The U.S. is the most propagandized country in the world. We are like we were the inventors of propaganda and we have like spread this poison everywhere. But basically, we are the ones that have have gotten it the most. And the theme of the propaganda is to emphasize individualism. You can do it alone. And on the flip side, any problems you have are your personal fault. Um, but of course, that's the opposite of where our power, we, our power comes from unity with each other. So as a result, immigrants who didn't get this propaganda have led or been a big element in some of the major labor struggles of our time from taxi drivers to janitors to meat packing to the May Day walkouts. Um, 
In California, immigrant voting power has really led the way on on making the state better for working class people. Um, so, and you can kind of see the problem and why they're so panicked about about the reconquest and immigration if you compare California and Texas. So California and Texas are both now majority people of color states, largely due to immigration. Um, And in one case, in California, powerful movements have won some stuff, not all we want, obviously, but very enough to be really irritating to employers. I mean, the minimum wage in California is more than twice what it is in Texas, right? Um, I think it's like, well, 725 in Texas, and I think like in California, it's 1550 at this point. So, so you can see that like in Texas, the power structure has engaged in this frantic gerrymandering and voter suppression and terrorizing immigrant communities, basically to keep themselves in power. And their power relies in part on a population of white people who identify with their employers and the rich because of their common whiteness. Now, this is, you know, this is the propaganda trick. It's not that uh, these these people who are running Texas love white, white working class people. They're happy to kill them off if they have a chance to make a profit. You know whether that's like denying them care in their insurance company or you know opioid crisis or whatever. But white people have been heavily propagandized to identify with and vote for their white oppressors. So this is why you have people like Steve King and our, we had a Republican state senator in Florida, Dennis Baxley, basically say the same thing. They're saying the quiet part out loud. They really see their power as dependent on the Euro-American birth rate. Um, Now, of course, demography is not destiny. Everybody of all races and origins are susceptible to being lied to and believing lies, just as everyone can learn the truth of the structure of who is benefiting and who is paying in, in our society. But I do think that this is their general, like their whole guard is whiteness, and they think that they can keep control of what is now not a majority white, you know, it's going to be not a majority white country, but already several states are not majority white. They think they can keep control of it through these various machinations. And they would also like to, as as maybe not a side issue, uh, raise the white birth rate. Um, so I think that's, that's part of what's going on. And, and when we, when it, it appears to be kind of like this cultural thing, I think if, if we look at it more in terms of like what the power structure in, in various states that have made abortion illegal is thinking about, I think we can sort of see through some of that. Yeah. And just, just as someone who is from an immigrant community, you know, my parents are from Iraq, um, you know, I grew up in among Assyrians, um, you know, they're brown, we're, we're brown, we're not white, but, you know, a lot of immigrants will want to join the racial hierarchy and become really, really right wing when they come here as well. Um, there's certainly, that does exist in immigrant communities as well, where like, and, and we see it, we see, you know, I've seen it, I've seen Republicans cater to a lot of these immigrant groups, because that is also part of their strategy, like, well, we ha- we're not going to be the majority, maybe race in 20 or 30 years. So it's time to get some of these other people voting for us. Um, and, you know, it, it's working in a lot of cases. A lot of black and brown people voted for Trump, um, have gone full QAnon. It's, it's, it's crazy, but it's, it's slowly, slowly it's working in a lot of immigrant communities. And it's really unfortunate. Mm. 
Well, you know, propaganda machines be propagandizing. Very powerful. Very yeah. powerful. Fear is very powerful. True. Yeah. So I wanted to um, touch a little bit on on chapter eight of the book, which is on reproduction and race, particularly as it relates to the history of forced sterilization of black and brown people in the U.S. Um, and kind of tying that into the birth strike framework and the idea of choice we're talking about, like how, how do we reconcile this history when the idea of choice and the idea of reproductive justice means like such different things. Um, And there's like just such different history among different groups of, of women and people with uteruses in terms of like a lack of choice really around um, reproduction. Yeah. I mean, the U S power structure has gone back and forth on wanting black people and not wanting black people and wanting black people's labor, but fearing their organizing. I mean, this really goes back to the founding of the country. So um, when the Haitian revolution started in 1781, so this is right after the U S has won their, their revolutionary war. Right. And so George Washington and his buddies were obviously freaked out here, are these slaveholders and they're seeing just across the pond, just down, down the way they're seeing people like them getting strung up by, um, by their formerly enslaved uh, people. So um, they they were afraid that there would be areas where they would be outnumbered by enslaved people. And, and so, and there were ongoing slave revolts all through the slavery period. Right. So this was a constant worry. And so they actually talk about uh, getting more Europeans in there to balance it out. They also did not want black people who knew about the revolution in Haiti to come to the U S they wanted to ban importation of, uh, of enslaved people from the Caribbean. Um, but their ability to get money out of the land in the U S was reliant on enslaved people. And so, and black people became a kind of wealth in the South with planters in, in a couple of States, Virginia and South Carolina, almost entirely reliant on black women's reproduction for their profits. So you can imagine the type of appalling reproductive coercion this, this led to. And of course the fight back, right? Freed women um, in the testimonies that they give after they get freed, they remember chewing cotton root as a contraceptive and black midwives would provide abortions on the sly, um, obviously risking their lives to do that. Um, so, but the ruling class has gone back and forth ever since. Um, like in, in the early part of the last century in the 19 teens, when um, the great migration of black people from the South going North and West really gained steam. Um, basically black people were moving out of the South for less repression and sometimes better jobs. And, the planters in the South did all kinds of tactics to keep them from leaving. They'd tear up people's train tickets. They'd force trains to skip stops on and on. They were in a panic. They'd arrest people so they couldn't get on the trains. I mean, it was just, they were in a panic. And yet by the 1950s, we see them imposing forced sterilization and wanting black people to, to leave the South. So what changed is um, several things. First of all, the cro- cotton crop was automated. They invested in automation 
basically because they were scared of all the black soldiers coming back from World War II and demanding their rights. Um, so by the 1960s, people are unemployed and civil rights demands are starting to gain traction in the courts. And Mississippi even tries to pass a bill that if you have a child out of wedlock, you will be sterilized. Um, it didn't pass. SNCC, which was the Vanguard Civil Rights Group, exposed it. But informally, doctors were sterilizing Black women um, at such a rate in Mississippi, it was called, they called it a Mississippi appendectomy among themselves, like this just vile, racist things, right? So um, th that kind of ends around 1975, that period. Basically, the Black movement exposed all of that. And then, but the other thing that's happening is the black radical movement is getting crushed and chant and the black movement is getting channeled. And then the global elite starts to panic about a population bust instead of what they had been pa panicking about before, which were they called the population bomb. And so like policies in the US basically have, have been to increase births since the 80s, although there are still outbreaks of racist sterilization policy. Now, like Puerto Rico is a great example of, of kind of the, the history of this. When the U.S. took over the island from Spain, they wanted huge plantations. To do that, they had to clear away all the small farmers, force them to go somewhere else, usually into the cities. That led to a bunch of crowding, poverty, because they'd taken away their uh, means of survival. And then demands for independence and socialism, that thing about like people getting angry and wanting to <laughs> wanting to run the country themselves. And um, so as a result, they brought in the rulers brought in sterilization, um, which was basically the only way women in Puerto Rico could control their childbearing because there was no abortion or birth control, at least for Puerto Rican women. Um, and then they were lied to that it was reversible. There was all of this abuse. Um, Puerto Rico became a testing ground for every contraceptive idea anybody came up with, the pill, IUDs, they even tasted contraceptive foam there. So essentially, the fear of revolt and the desire to clear the land of farmers were the drivers of this. So it's similar to the mainland in some respect, but also different. But I think the main thing that we can get is we need to look at the specifics of the situation and not just assume that racism is a constant that's outside of history or unaffected by ruling class interests. They're using their interests and then they're, and then they're coming down on people in their own interests at, in various ways at various times. And that looks different at different periods. So I think that's like, when we look at it now, we need to, we need to see all of the different ways that that has played out in history. And then we can sort of analyze it a little bit better. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere that black um, slave labor in the South built the British Empire. And when you really look at it that way, it's just, it's breathtaking. It's breathtaking just how much, um, how much value there was in uh, slave labor and of course, interest in their reproduction. Yeah, I think um, we're coming to the end of time here, but I think um, something we wanted to ask about at the end is just sort of, you know, we've already started to see this like really horrifying rollback of abortion rights in various states. Um, and I was curious, like what's next in terms of like what, 
what are you looking out for from the right as like next steps that might be happening? Um, And then I think on the other side of things, like what do you think is next for the reproductive justice movement? Um, What can folks be doing to get involved? How can folks follow your work, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I we probably can all all point to the the different things that we've seen. We've seen signs of it with you know cuts to family planning budgets, the gag rules that don't say gay in Florida, the attacks on trans healthcare. They basically want to push us all into heterosexual married couples procreating, as far as I can tell. Like that's the whole right. that's the whole thing. And they even that's there's literally the that- worst possible thing anyone could have. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so sorry. Continue. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, if you but but then they don't provide enough money for right. us to do it. So you know, right. I, I don't know. But but basically, they're not. To, they're creating a crisis for us. We have to create a crisis for them. Yeah. And I think that's the that's the thing is like is like we're our ability to create a crisis for them is what's going to what's going to turn this around. So. Um, I'm very excited about like different things people are talking about having a ship in the Gulf that will provide abortions. And basically, you know, I mean, there's a lot of creative stuff happening. Um, We in National Women's Liberation, we have an aid and abet abortion pledge that's sort of like modeled on what we did when we were working on the morning after pill. So you you pledge to aid and abet um, an abortion. There are a bunch of ways you can do it. And I think people are already thinking about this stuff. I think it's really important to think about how the underground stuff, unless unless it's made public, which, you know, it might be done involuntarily, but unless it's made public, it does not have the power that above ground stuff does. So we need to think about like how to make that as powerful as possible. And then in the underground stuff, we need to figure out how to make mutual aid, not just charity but organizing I think that's going to be really important I mean for uh with the with the early underground abortion stuff that that people did in um in the late 60s and early 70s a lot of that was the basis for then organizing uh, clinics you know radical on a on a radical basis after the law changed so like making sure that 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 mutual aid is also an organizing project and people are knitting together and becoming like really cadres of of people who know and trust and work together and can be like lifelong comrades that's really important um and i also think we need to tie in our whole idea around into uh, our demand for a national health system. I mean, we can't have true reproductive freedom as long as we have to pay for contraceptives and abortion. And I think a great example is like in Argentina, right? They win the new law in 2020. It says the system has to give you an abortion within 10 days of your request. Now, of course, they're fighting to, to make that real. But compared to here, we can see how we never really won abortion rights. I mean, not really. Like we, we have to, we got the right to scrape together $530 to get an abortion, but we never had a guarantee and we never had uh, free birth control. We never had all those things. So for, to go back to the status quo before the Dobbs decision, this recent Dobbs decision is just n- not where we want to be. And if we want to pull everybody together and push towards it, I think we're, we, we have to think about like 
what are the big demands that can unite people. Um, the other thing is that we were able to win a lot in the 1960s women's liberation movement, but, but not on things that cost capital money, right? <laughs> so we didn't win the childcare, we didn't win the paid leave, we got we got men to be somewhat better, and we and we won some equality in some areas. But um, but unless we are able to push through and really win a government that is interested in human needs, we are not going to win the stuff that we need for w- women's liberation. I mean, even we're not even going to get the 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 equality that we need with with guys in our lives. Never mind. Um, never mind all the other things that we need. So um, I don't think we can really win any of this at anymore as a feminist demand. I think, um, you know, this is on the shoulders now of left and progressive forces in our country to fight as a broad movement, to make a society that provides a good life for everyone. And, and all of these rights that we need of bodily autonomy and and freedom and joy and not just an unimaginable luxury for this tiny few which is what our society is right now arranged around so i think that's the that's where we we really need to think about the the bigger demands and and how we can get it all Amazing. Just as a, a quick follow-up to sort of close that out, um, in terms of like big demands and, and things like universal health care, universal child care, um, it, it's one thing to like go out into the streets and protest and, um, you know, do things like mutual aid and fundraising to sort of meet the crises of the moment. Um, demanding things doesn't always work. You know, mass protest doesn't always work. Um, you know, what p- the power we have collectively um, is not just in mass demonstration and demand, but it, it, it lies in our, you know, as a Marxist, to me, it lies at the point of production. That's, that's where the working class especially has a lot of power. Um, in your view, how do we exercise that to, to win these demands and not just, not just make them, um, but actually coerce the ruling class to force their hand and give these things up? Well, I, I think the left has been coming out of the 60s has been somewhat allergic to um, electoral politics. And I think that that has finally been broken a little bit. Um, and that we actually, you know, we actually are able to elect people and I'm in New York, so I'm in a little bit of a bubble in terms of what DSA has been able to do. But um, but we are actually able to to make some of these, uh, you know, a- a- actually get get representatives who can raise this stuff at least in the. Um, but but we really need, you know, we really need a political party that represents uh, working people. And um, you know, I was involved in an effort to try to do that in the '90s. Um, and one of the problems we ran into was that the U.S. doesn't really have a party system. It's, yeah, there are these two things called parties, but they're not like membership parties. They don't really exist. So, so like whether you're, and it, but they do exist to prevent anybody else from starting a new party uh, or a third party or a different party, uh, as we can see from like, the struggles that the green party has had to even get on the ballot. Right. So, so 
with the Bernie runs, I think we've seen that you can actually um, make the Democratic Party have to pay attention and and even change some things. I mean, you know, obviously our our system is a in, in a terrible gridlock right now because because of the filibuster. But you can actually have um, a party within a party that pushes some of that stuff. So whether that eventually becomes a different party or whether that eventually takes over the Democratic Party, I don't really care. I just think that we need to have working people need to have representation. And so we need to think about how to do that. And that means that the labor movement, which is, um, you know, kind of has, there are aspects of it that are very established and, and not really looking for, uh, for ways to really break out from the Democratic Party. And then there are other aspects of it that are actually really, uh, really active. I think we need to look to those active areas and really encourage that because as you say, our power is on the job. That's where we have a lot of say and or could have a lot of say. So um, as we see people organizing all over the country, um, that's where, you know, eventually you get the basis for a party that represents the vast majority of us and will fight for the things that we need. And as we can see, in countries where they have actually been able to have a party that does that, it really makes a big difference. So I would say thinking about like, what are the elements that would, that would bring together the political forces that could force some of these things? I think the labor movement is an, a giant piece of that. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we unfortunately are out of time, but we are so grateful we had this opportunity to speak with you and your absolute wealth of wisdom um, on these topics. So thank you so much for joining us. And um, we wanted to let people know that right now your book is 50% off on the... As a PM press... PMPress.org. Yes, PMPress.org. If you need the code, the code is ashes. Um, like our society is turning to ash. Um, <laughs> or building a new society from the ashes of the old. Exactly. Yes. We are phoenixes. Um, <laughs> Phoenix I? I don't know. Either way, thank you so much. Um, you've given me a lot of just like hopeful feelings so i hope others feel similarly and um that they pick up your book it's a great book everybody read it it's a really good marxist analysis of the current moment um everyone should read it thank you so much jenny thank you so much for coming on <laughs> and doing thanks this. thanks so much it's been great um thanks for joining us y'all that was our episode um i hope it's a little bit like feeling a bit more energized than some of our previous episodes on this topic, which have been more of the depressing part of things. Um, if you enjoyed that, after you buy Jenny's book, you can send us some money on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. The book's uh, 50% off. You can exactly. give us the other 50%. So yeah, give us the other My 50%. dog's agreeing. <laughs> Um, if you join us there, you can also join our Discord where you can talk to us all personally. Um, we also occasionally have other activities through there. 
Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Visit our website, seasonofthebee.com, and you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. Send us some love. We love to read your reviews. Yes. Uh, that's it. Oh my God. Belita, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having yes. me. This was so fun. Come back <laughs> literally <laughs> anytime. Yes, I will. Please. I'll on that. Good. <laughs> please okay, please love do. Love, love you. Bye. Bye. Bitch.